Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome, sisters and brothers, to another episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockadell, your State Fed President, and your co-host for this latest episode. Today, we have two fabulous guests to help us discuss how the labor movement needs to continue or, or to strengthen the fight to resist privatization of public services. In 2017, the Connecticut legislature passed a bill that required Yukon Health and Farmington to look into public-private partnerships which most people will tell you is privatization or at least the gateway to it. So to help co-host this episode, we have Bill Garrity. Bill is a longtime labor activist and a health professional serving many union positions until he became the president of Yukon Health Professionals or UHP in 2016. Bill is currently the AFT Connecticut's divisional vice president for public employees and was previously the Connecticut, AFT Connecticut's divisional vice president for healthcare. So Bill, you know firsthand the attempts that have been made to privatize Yukon and tell us about that. And also tell us your thoughts on the 2017 legislation regarding that public-private partnership. It was a difficult time at the legislature, if I remember correctly, it was a 50-50 split in our state Senate. Um, and there, were, there was difficulty in setting up how to get further down the line at Yukon Health. Um, we were struggling uh, for our block grant. Uh, money had been chipped away uh, through, through the years and uh, where almost every other state agency is fully funded, Yukon Health is not. Um, so we were having difficulties, um, I'd say making ends meet, but yeah, making ends meet. And it's never a good thing when you have to keep going back to the legislature and say, well, you know, we, we could really use uh, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, and we had some people on the other side, on, on both sides of the aisle, including some of our uh, people who are supposed to be uh, helping us out, uh, got together and uh, came up and said that uh, this might be the best way to go. This might be the best thing to do with, with this privatization issue. There's really been a 50 year campaign to turn public goods and services into private profit centers. And unfortunately, as we saw in our own democratically led legislature, it seems appealing to legislators right now because it gives the appearance that government can cut without cutting services. And AFT Connecticut, well, and the whole state labor movement have a long history of resisting privatization through legislative advocacy, collective bargaining and public relations. But it seems like we need to engage in a new anti-privatization campaign. So we are so honored to have our next guest with us here today, a longtime friend of labor, uh, Donald Cohen, who is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, a national resource and policy center on privatization and responsible contracting. And he has been published in numerous sources like the New York Times, Reuters, uh, the New Republic, and his latest book, which I was lucky enough to receive for Christmas, called The Privatization of Everything. So welcome, Don. Well, thanks so much 
for having me. I'm really honored. I, I really uh, like to work with, uh, with folks in labor organizations in Connecticut. Um, and so I'm, it always impresses me how much you can get done in you know, what turns out to be a pretty difficult state to work in sometimes. So you heard Bill and I talking about the privatization efforts um, at Connecticut's only state-run hospital. Um, to us, it just seems a lot like the David versus Goliath, but we really haven't found and thrown that lucky stone yet. We're really, we really admire that you've chosen to make, you know, standing up to these powerful special interest groups, you know, your career. Can you tell us what inspired you to do that? Well, I've been doing this work a long time. So I think there's really a couple of things. You know, when I grew up, we had good schools. I grew up on the East Coast, so we had good schools and good services. And, you know, and, you know, we, and in that period of time, in the 60s, you know, people thought government was something we needed to, you know, to take, you know, to take care of all of us. You know, and that's changed a lot, but I think that's you know incredibly important that you know that it that it has been that way, and it and it can be and needs to be that way. People need to trust government. They need to realize that we have to do things together. I guess the other thing at a personal level is I I really hate greed, and I really hate hate, and both of those things seem to be, uh, you know in full form these days. And so that kind of motivates me to work. Um, you know, let me, even if I could say something about what in your introduction about, you know, about Yukon, if I, you know, cause it just it's in, it popped into my head. You said they promised to provide less services for less. How do you do that? Because less means less services, period, end of sentence. One of the things I say in talks I do everywhere is, you know, some really kind of simple things. Things cost money and there's only one place for that money and it's us. So if you, and then the private sector comes in and we says we could do it cheaper, but they've got profits and they've got CEO, high CEO salaries and they buy up other companies. So they have to, you know, they have to pay off their debt for that. Where does it come from? It can only come from one place and that's service. So it's pure mythology. Don, you had some, really good insight when you came and talked to us back in 2017, 2018, when UConn Health was going through this. We, we contacted into public interest. You came right out and were able to sit down with us. It was it was really good uh, conversation with all the labor unions, uh, having you in the room. Um, on the plus side, we found we were doing a lot of things very, very right at that time, uh, reaching out to our legislative uh, uh, help uh, trying to keep everything as, as public as we, as we could. Um, and um, for me, one of the big things that really stuck with me was um, as a public institution, we go ahead and um, have buildings built with public money. And if we just went ahead and spent almost half a billion dollars on two large, beautiful buildings that they put up, and now we were talking about becoming a, having a public-private partnership and sending this kind of thing um, somewhere else. And the question that no one thought about afterwards, and I've used it multiple times talking to legislators, who's going to foot the bill for those buildings now if we're going ahead and giving this stuff away? So you point us on a, on a great path, and I was wondering if you'd like to be able to expound on anything like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of always go to the simple. There, you know, there, there's no, there's no, there's no magic money. There's no, you know, we don't go to Mars or the Moon and get money. It's all, you know, 
the only people that can pay for things are us. We pay, if it's insurance, we pay through our health insurance premiums. If it's uh, you know if it's taxes, we pay through taxes. If it's a toll road, we pay the toll. That's it, right? So they come in and they say they can do it cheaper, better, faster, and it, you know it, I already talked about that a little bit. Um, you got to sort of be a truth teller, a, a truth teller and a fact checker at, in all these things. Okay, they say they can make money. Hmm. How much, but they're going to get paid back. How much will that cost? How much extra will that cost if we provide the same level of service? Or what services will have to be cut, right? So you'd sort of have to kind of interrogate each of these proposals because they operate at the, at the, at the bumper sticker level. You know, it's cheaper. The private sector does everything better. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that's the most important thing I think we do is ask, is, is teach people and encourage people to ask the really hard questions. As a follow up, um, in your book, there are lots of similar examples of labor led campaigns where unions and members have a really unique role in standing up to privatization and ensuring those public goods are, as you said, for the common good. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's a great question. So three things. One is, it's important to remember that union members live in the community. <laughs> I mean, again, it's another thing like sort of obvious, but it's worth saying that they may very well be the both the providers of, of public services and the users. In fact, they are. We, that, so there's no debt separation between public sector workers and the rest of us. That's important to, to recognize. The other kind of two two more things, you know. Often, when something when there's some talk or a proposal or about potentially privatizing something, the the workforce on the ground are the ones that hear about it first. And what we've learned over the years is, you know, a simple fact: you start early, you can win. You start late, you do lose. It, you know, and so knowing early that these things are in the works gives you time. You know, like an early warning system gives you time to actually mount a campaign that's, you know, with facts and coalitions and a whole set of things. But then there's one more thing that I think is super important. You know, we live in an environment, you know, after 40 years of attack on government where people really don't like government, except they like the stuff. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, they're sort of it's schizophrenic about it a little bit. But I think what's really important for, for your members, for really every public sector worker in the country is to really be advocates for the public good and for public services, right? What's the Yukon Hospital about? It's about health. It's about health for some people because it's the public hospital, but we need, but, but healthcare isn't about just me being healthy. We need the, the purpose of healthcare is for everyone to be healthy. So it's important to kind of lift up the public purpose, how it, how, how it helps us all, how we're all interdependent, and how actually government, you know, government workers are every day are doing things that help help us all, and we don't talk about that enough, and we need to. Don, um, you and your co-author warn about using, um, warn about elected officials and you know talking heads using the pandemic to justify more privatization. Um, can you expand on that for me? I don't envy any uh, Joe Biden or, the, or anybody who's trying to actually fix this and deal deal with this in a serious way. This is unprecedented in our lives. It's a massive country. We weren't well prepared. And in fact, we are fighting nature that we don't control. 
you know, we don't control the virus. So who knows what happens next? We, you know, we are, we don't control everything. So, um, so those that, you know, want to downsize government and attack unions and all that, they're using all, every time there's a shortage of masks or, you know, kind of whatever, right? Or, um, or you know, or they don't like Fauci because Fauci said something that wasn't 100% true tomorrow, it was true yesterday because of the uncertainty. So they're using this to say the private sector, you know, will have to come to the rescue, government fails. I think what's important to remember there though is when Trump first, when, when he was president and he his first response to COVID was to give it to the private market entirely and it was a complete failure. And so that, and that was widely recognized as a complete failure. You know, states were competing against states to buy masks and, you know, and testing equipment and all this stuff is kind of nuts. Um, so even the Trump administration created uh, Operation Warp Speed, which began to coordinate, you know, use the power of government to coordinate in a better, in a better way. So people sort of, you know, as crazy as things are now, there are lots of people who get it. You know, you can't solve something this big without, you know, the very visible hand of government. Let me give you an illustration of what privatization is really all about. It, 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 I'm going to tell a brief story. It's actually not in the book. It's something I learned a, a, you know, about a month ago in, in, a, in a discussion with folks in Michigan. So when COVID happened, universities shut down, right? They sent all the kids home. There were no kids in the dorm, no students in the dorms. Okay. A number of um, universities are now starting to privatize their dorms. Um, and there's a company, a national company that's got a bunch of them. Its name is Corvius, I think is how you pronounce it. And so Corvius has a number of contracts. So when, when some universities wanted to start to bring back students to campus to do some you know, in-class uh, education, um, they wanted to do that, but have fewer kids in the dorm for, so, you know, for public health reasons. They wanted to have lower occupancy. So we, we found uh, letters that the company sent to two universities, uh, to two, uh, Georgia State and Wayne State. Okay, so when, they, when the university said they were gonna do this at lower occupancy, they received this letter from the company's lawyers essentially that said the following, the university does not have the unilateral right under the contract to institute a policy that would limit the number of students who can occupy the student housing. So you have the university as leadership is responsible for the education of the students, for their health on campus and all that. And they, you know, that's their responsibility. Um, they, their hands are tied by that contract, that they can't do their job. And you see those kind of features and contracts in, you know, that cities do with private, with private companies as well, where the hands of elected officials can't do their job because they're, they are constrained by long-term contractual language. It's, it's really at the heart of all this. It's an assault on democracy. Don, in your book, you talk about racism and how it relates to privatization. Can you expand on that for us? In privatization of education, you know, one of our most important public goods and services, the, the history of public school choice was the, the segregationist response to Brown versus Board of Education. White parents did not wanna send their kids to school with black kids in Southern states. So the response of those states, the state legislatures were to pass laws that, you know, that, that created school voucher 
opportunities for school vouchers. So kid, so they could, parents could, you know, walk with, you know, take their dollars and go to a, a white school, you know, a white flight academy or a segregation academy. Uh, and, and they even took the step of closing down uh, predominantly black schools, right? So that was their initial response. We're seeing the echoes of that today with increased segregation as the number of charter schools grow and the number of voucher laws passed in states around the country. So that's, it's really at the core of privatization. I guess the one other piece is that, you know, you're, we all remember when President, when Reagan was president, you know, he, he talked about welfare queens, right? You know, because, and what was really going on there? He was saying, look, government serves somebody else, not you. And not only somebody else, but someone else who doesn't deserve it anyway. So when you turn, and, and as I was saying earlier, as when you turn people away from government and when you continue, you know, the idea of government, the institution, when you dismantle that in that way, then the reformers walk in and say, we have a solution, privatization. John, my final question, you know, there are just so many inspiring stories told in your book and without giving too much away, can you share one of your favorite stories? We all, I think, understand now that access to the internet, broadband is a universal need. It's as important a piece of infrastructure as the roads and the highways and all that. So, so you know, cities around the country are starting to create municipal broadband office services, right? And some are doing it well, some, you know, with good labor standards, some are not doing it well with that, you know, but they're trying to, you know, meet the public's need in all cases without profit involved, without giving it to the private sector. In response, Private telecom companies are going to state legislators, legislatures, they're going to state legislatures to pass laws to preempt and prevent cities from being able to do this. And they're, they're doing these laws all over the country. In Colorado, they did that, but they left kind of a, what I call a pro-public loophole. Um, they allowed that if cities wanted to do it, they had to take a public vote, right? So a bunch of cities started doing it. And every one of them won by overwhelming margins. <laughs> he said, we want this to be a public service. Denver, Loveland, Fort, I mean, it, it's a long list. So what it says to me is, you know, people engage, say well, they want something, they put it on the ballot. And, you know, so that happens because people are active. And then it goes to the voters and people say, yeah, of course, it makes total sense. Why should a private company get to decide what we do? So that, that one, I, I like that one a lot. And I really uh, encourage listeners to purchase Don's book, The Privatization of Everything. And, you know, don't just don't take my word for it. Both our national president, Randy Weingarten, and one of Connecticut's favorite congresswoman, Rosa DeLora, both have quotes of praise in the book. So thank you so much, Don, for joining as a guest and really for your advocacy and helping others in resisting privatization. Well, thanks so much for having me when, you know, at some point this year, I, I, I look forward to coming back to Connecticut. And thank you, Bill, for co-hosting with me once again and for engaging in our discussions with Don. And really a special thanks to you for all you do for our members, um, especially in advocating and engaging members in legislative actions. You know, we have our work cut out for us, but I know we can do it. Thank you so much, Jan. I, uh, I, this is something I truly enjoy doing and uh, fighting privatization at UConn Health is one of the biggest things I've ever done. So thank you and thank you, Don. Thank you, Bill. And thank you to all of our members for listening. And for our next episode, we're gonna be having a conversation on what is happening in our hospitals. We still have a lot of work to do, strengthening regulations, 
Um, we can talk about the services that are being shut down, as well as implementing safe patient limits in health facilities. But what I'd love is to hear your thoughts. Please send any comments by email to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-C-T-N-E-T-R-E-P-L-Y at sign aftct.org. Or you can leave a voice message by dialing 860-257-9782 and asking for extension 116. That's 860-257-9782, extension 116. Thank you for listening and thank you for all you do. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too and help build the power of the UNI in union.